I I 100% agree. I'm just going to say like, I I think one of like my biggest um, take home lessons about training sprinting, and this is, this is just, you know, one guy's opinion is that you can make the majority of the improvements here sprinting on the bike, like actually sprinting. What's up, friends? Welcome back to episode 14 of the Matchbox Podcast presented by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host, Adam Sabin. With me in the studio this week, we've got my co-host, Andrew Jeanette, Ignition co-founder, Drew Dillman, as well as a new guest on the show, Scott McGill. Scott is a fellow Ignition coach, as well as professional road and cyclocross racer. He has a reputation for his sprinting prowess on the road, which is part of the reason why we brought him on the episode this week. Today, after our usual racing and training banter in the beginning, we get into the topic of sprinting and sprint training. So stay tuned for that. As always, if you like what you hear, share this with your friends and leave us a five-star review. If you want us to cover a training-related topic in a future episode, you can drop us an email at info at ignitioncoachco.com with the email title The Matchbox Podcast or send us a DM on Instagram. All right, let's get into it. Hey, hey, what's up, guys? Morning. Good morning. Morning. Dizzle just not going to say anything. Um, so we got a, we got a new face on the show today, uh, new voice on the show, whatever you'd call it, um, and Scott McGill. So Scott is one of our uh, fellow Ignition Coach Co. coaches. A uh, little fun fact here, Scott and I were actually the first two coaches that Ignition hired. We were the inaugural graduating class of the Ignition School of Training spring of 2021. Um, so we've been coaching with Ignition for over a year now. Um, Scott is a professional road racer and cyclocross racer. So if you're in either of those scenes, you've probably heard of his name. Uh, he's ranked pretty high in, in both. Um, I would say he's probably a little more of a sprint specialist on the road. Is that what you would say, Scott? If you could call yourself a sprint specialist or all around? Yeah. Yeah, you could say that. Okay, so uh, we brought Scott on the show today, one, because he's a good guy, uh, two, because of his sprinting abilities, and that's going to be the topic of the show today. We're going to talk all things sprinting, Uh, but before we do that, we're going to do our usual uh, race recap from the weekend, and we got a congratulations uh, to to start off with. So, Drew, you did it, man. You called it. Like three weeks ago, you came on the show and you said that there was this race coming up in Iowa that you really wanted to win. It's called Snake Alley. And uh, you went and did it, man. Tell us about it. Yeah. Um, I didn't say I was going to win. I just said I wanted to win. Let's clarify that. Because <laughs> um, I definitely wasn't like 100% sure I was going to win the win the thing. Um, I had a hunch, but yeah. Um it was pretty sweet. I, d- I hadn't done that race in a really long time since, uh, I think since I was like 20 years old. So about eight, eight years ago, I think maybe 2013 or 14 was the last time I had done that race. So all kinds of good memories as a junior. I think I won it as a junior years and years ago. So, uh, so yeah, got the win, uh, definitely helps to have a strong team. The whole, the whole squad was there. We had, um, for snake alley, we had, six riders, six of our elite riders, and then two, uh, two masters riders jumped in and raced with us. So yeah, we had a full roster of guys. Um, and it was, it's a very different crit. Uh, this year it was longer. It was a mile and a half course, which is pretty long for a crit. Um, they had to change the course from years past, I think because of construction. So that's why it was a little longer, but, uh, 
yeah, it was just a different crit because that climb is so technical and tight that it inevitably just creates all kinds of gaps. So even from lap one, uh, luckily I started near the front of the pack and and came out of the top of the snake alley on lap one. And it's already like 20 dudes. Like the race is already down to 20 dudes uh, on lap one, like within the first three minutes. And so I'm um, sure there's guys like burning matches to catch us, but it's really hard to come from the back of the group in that race. It's kind of like a cyclocross race where your call up actually matters. Um, so at that point it was just dwindling and dwindling. Uh, the group got smaller and smaller every time we went up snake uh, eventually some guys got off the front, me and a CS fellow, Connor White. Is that his name, Andrew? Yeah. Your teammate? Well, and let me, yeah, exactly. And let me add, um, you might not have said that you were going to win the race, but I believed in you. And so on the night before Snake <laughs> Alley, I told my teammate, Connor White, Oh yeah. watch Dillman. Watch this I guy. said he can't sprint, but he's going to be really good. <laughs> <laughs> watch you can't sprint yeah he told well, me that you told him that actually <laughs> cool which is pretty funny i'm like why did he say that um okay good because well, it was drew yeah, man so me and him actually, the race. <laughs> what do you yeah, mean me and him actually bridged there was three dudes up the road um so they yeah me and him bridged up to them it was a group of five and then Cade bickmore who was my teammate uh, bridged up with like two more riders so it ended up being a group of eight for about half the race like the second half of the race and it was uh, the eight of us we were pretty locked in like we figured this was the the final final group there was a cinch kid who uh, sean christian i think was his name and he was hitting it pretty hard on the climb every lap i was following him but it wasn't he wasn't he was going hard on the climb but he wasn't extending any kind of a gap after the climb so we'd always just kind of crawl like bring him back slowly uh and then with two laps to go Cade kind of went to the surged to the front um on the downhill right right before snake alley and uh i had been wanting to attack since about five to go i was like okay any any time the opportunity arises i'm gonna like send one and he when he went to the front i knew exactly what i was gonna do there was like just a long enough straightaway before snake alley that i had just enough time to like pop out of the saddle and sprint by Cade right before we drop into the snake. Um, and the snake is so narrow that, that it was like perfect. Like Cade didn't know I was going to do that, but immediately when I came around him, pretty sure he knew exactly what I was trying to set him up for. So he could kind of, you know, not full on put on the brakes, but like he could kind of let the gap open on the climb. And I think he did. And so when I came out of the top, I had a little bit of a gap and then he just kind of, flicks his elbow and lets whoever do the work to try to bring me back. But at that point I had a gap. Um, and then it was just maintaining that gap for the last lap and a half. There was these two crazy long straightaways and I knew that they were going to be really close to me on those straightaways if they worked together. But, uh, yeah, I just put my head down and I didn't, I don't think I looked back a single time until the last turn. Cause I was like a hundred percent committed to like going solo. Cause I didn't want to come down to a sprint. Um, so yeah, I looked back after that final turn and didn't see him behind me. So I had it wrapped up, which was pretty sweet. So did you and have to go Cade, up the snake one more time? Yeah. Yeah. So on the last lap, I bombed the downhill. Uh, I was feeling really good on the downhill. There was, it was basically like this really long two straightaways and then a 
pretty technical downhill and then the snake. And that was like the whole course pretty much. Uh, so yeah, I had to hit, I had to hit the snake one more time and really the spot to be like the spot where time was being probably gained on my behalf was after the snake. Cause when you popped out of the snake, you kept going straight and it was like this false flat. And so if you really like, I intentionally made myself like stand up and get on the pedals pretty quick. Um, and I think people naturally want to sit up there because they, they're like, Oh, I'm done climbing. And so that's a spot where you, I think I was gaining the most time probably sick. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. And then it was a, it was a four day weekend. So, um, that day we went one, two, Cade, Cade, Cade wrapped up the, the sprint for roadhouse behind me. Uh, the next day we went into that day pretty confident. Like Cade had one day one, I had one day two. Uh, so we were going into day three thinking like we're the team to watch. It's pretty clear that we're the dominant team. Um, we attacked a lot in that race. Um, I actually did some pretty poor strategic moves with like two to go. Um, I think maybe winning snake the day before was like a little in my head. So I was like, maybe I'll try to solo again. And, uh, so I sent a flyer with like two to go, but on that course, it was like really bad, bad. It wasn't going to work. Um, basically cause it was this super fast downhill, just straight into a climb. And so like the, the group could, could carry so much more momentum into the climb that when I attacked, I had to put out so much energy, uh, and they, pro- and they caught me like so easily. And so it was kind of a useless attack. And then, and then my teammates kind of got shuffled back into the group because I had attacked, which was not good. Cause we were all already at the front with two to go. And so me attacking kind of kind of messed things up honestly um and they told me that after the race so so they gave me some pointers you know i'm still learning and uh so then i shuffled once they caught me i shuffled back into the top 10 uh i was sitting like right around 15th going up the final climb and knew i needed to like basically it's a sprint to the top of the climb there's a a tight turn and then a little downhill to the finish so on the last lap i was trying to you know pop around the the people in front of me, uh, I was, I was going up the right side, uh, and a dude just like swerved over right in front of me and that crashed into me. So, uh, I was probably going a good 10 miles per hour faster than he was. I have no idea what he was doing, but he could tell that he was getting past and I guess he didn't want to get past anymore. And he just like turned right in front of me. So, uh, I had nowhere to go except for into his back and then over the bars and onto the pavement. Um, Luckily, it was like nothing was broken. I broke my front wheel, but had spares. And so didn't finish that day. Cade, Cade was still able to get third. Um, we still did pretty good as a team. We got third, sixth, and 11th, so like not bad. And then the final day, it was very kind of similar to Snake, but like without the technical element of the turns. Um, just a you know pretty good kicker of a climb. And then a straight downhill and then two turns to the finish. Um and I didn't do a single thing for like the first 40 minutes. It was 75 minute race. And then, uh, yeah, my teammate was like up the road solo. So I bridged from the group to him. So we had two guys off the front and then eventually he had to just say, Hey man, I don't, I don't got it. And so he sent me on my way. I was able to solo the last four laps of that race as well. (laughs) So pretty good weekend. Sick, man. That's awesome. Congrats. Thank you. Uh, well, Andrew and I did not do any racing, but uh, homeboy Scott here, I think you did a little racing this weekend. You want to talk about it quick? 
Yeah, sure. Um, I did the uh, Tour of Somerville, which is, I believe it's the oldest race in America. This year was the 77th edition. So it's definitely cool. I've never been wow. able to uh, do it before, so it was cool to be able to do that one because it's so historic. I've heard of a lot of races um, trying to claim that as like oldest race in America, but 77 years, that one's got to take the cake for sure. They, yeah. Uh, yeah. They call sure. themselves the conduct, the Kentucky Derby of bike racing. Okay. <laughs> I like nice. it. Yeah. And it's definitely uh, like in the town, you know, it goes through like downtown and then goes around kind of like, like the backstretch is kind of like in a neighborhood. So all the people who have houses, there, like set up tents and they're, it's like a big Memorial day celebration party thing. So it was, it was a pretty good atmosphere. Um, typically it's like an easy crit cause it's real wide and pan flat and usually just comes down to a sprint. Um, but this year the break ended up going on like the second or third lap. Um, and I, I had a team, one teammate there and he was, you know, he's like a pretty, pretty quick sprinter. If it's a, if it's an easy race, whereas I'm more better in a harder, harder race and out of a breakaway. So our plan was like, I was going to, you know, ta- tag stuff throughout the race and, and he was going to sit back a little bit. And, and if it came down to a bunch sprint, he'd be the guy. Um, but so I went with the first move that I, the first move I followed ended up going all the way to the to the line. It was um, about 15 riders and it ended up splitting like halfway through the race. So there was, I think 10 of us that came to the line together. Uh, and I en- ended up third in that sprint, um, which was okay. I guess I wasn't super stoked on that, but a podium is a podium still. So could have, could have gone a lot worse, but would have loved to win too. Sweet. Nice. And you can tell us a little bit more about your sprinting tactics when we get into the topic here. Because that's the topic of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you guys have any any races coming up that you want to try and call a W on again or, or what? Call a W? Yeah, like man. I'm going to win this race? Yeah. Come on, Drew. Most no, winningest guy on the If I podcast. ever do that. You, if, if I ever do that. No, this weekend was my first one-two win ever. <laughs> On the road, so nobody else here won. It was a it was a very good weekend. I'll admit to that, but yeah, also my first time winning. So uh, take it with a grain of salt, I guess. But I'm doing Tulsa in two weeks. That's all I got coming up. Nothing this weekend. I'm not going to call the dub on that one. Um, yeah, we're going into that one probably a little more humble, uh, knowing that we're not going to be like the dominant team. But we want to be. I think I think we're going into it feeling good. Um, like hopefully we're right up there in the mix of things. Um, yeah. Why not? Yeah. Crybaby's a good one for you, man. That's a tough. That's like yeah. A- I think and you know yeah. After the way I raced this weekend, I'm I'm really looking forward to that race. I think uh, I think we're definitely you know our goal is to put somebody on the podium at that race for sure. Either me or Cade. Yeah. I, th- I think the big difference is going to be that on those courses, there's going to be teams that are going to be able to control. Right, like at Snake mm-hmm. Alley, like nobody can do yeah. anything. Um, but yeah, right, right. You got to be like a little bit. You can't like brute force stuff quite as much, maybe. Yeah. Yep, for sure. But yeah, Scott and I got. Right. Um, Let's talk about sprinting. Armed forces <laughs> coming up. Oh, what what do you got coming up, Adam? Is that this weekend? 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've got an athlete that's going to Armed Forces, I think. Is that just a one-day race on Sunday, I think, right? No, it's two. Two days. It is two days. Okay. Yeah. I gotta it's like a like a sprinty crit um, and then like a 100K death crit. <laughs> yeah, it's like the oh, last yeah. hard crit in America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. It's not just a procession. <laughs> <laughs> didn't somebody solo that race for like an hour last year no well i don't know if it was an hour no, it wasn't an hour it was a long time no vogel he soloed for a long time didn't he yeah maybe like 20 laps or something 20 yeah that's a long time yeah cool <laughs> I like that. All right, game. Adam wants to talk about sprinting. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, let's just get into sprinting here. Um, yeah, so yeah, Andrew, yeah. you want to kick us off? So we, we're going to start off with talking about some of the underlining physiological mechanisms of sprinting. Uh, you want to take it away here? Yeah. So this is this is going to feel like a, a bit of a lecture, but we want to we want to get into the fun stuff. So um, let's let's kind of knock this out. So energetically, one of the cool things about sprinting is that it, it essentially has its own energy system. Um, which is the ATP PC system. It's not um, an energy system we've talked about much on the podcast. Um, it stands for your phosphocreatine system, and, and it's responsible for um, like the shortest, um, highest energy demands. Um, and it, it only lasts for about 10 seconds. So, um, you know, we, we do use that when we're not sprinting. We, we essentially use that like any time um, we initiate you know, uh, a movement or an action, we, you know, we get a little bump from that just to kind of get us going. Um, but in this case, we're actually going to, you know, be burning through, you know, that, that whole energy store available to us. Uh, and then after that, you know, anaerobic glycolysis takes over. And so, um, you know, sprints can last, you know, maybe we define a sprint as anything lasting from one to 20 seconds or one to 30 seconds. And so, um, it's kind of biphasic um, in that we go through that first energy system and get into the second. Um, and, and sprinting comes down a lot to, or the ability to sprint comes down a lot to like rider type, right? So um, we're all aware that there are climbers and time trialists and sprinters out there. Um, and the thing that distinguishes a sprinter from, let's say, a time trialist on the other side of the spectrum is uh, a couple of things. The first of which, the most obvious of which, is fiber type. So um, sprinters tend to have much more fast twitch muscle fibers, um, which are gonna which are gonna make them a little bit more explosive. Um, but it's also gonna make them probably less good at, at things like time trialing. So that's sort of our spectrum. Whereas the time trials has more slow twitch fibers. Um, the other kind of maybe more nuanced element of this is, uh, this concept of muscle architecture. Um, so that's actually the way that your muscles are organized. Um, so specifically that's stuff like pination angle, um, as well as like muscle tendon stiffness is sort of a, an interesting one. That's, that's not that much. You're just going to drop a phrase like pination angle and expect us to know what that means. (laughs) <laughs> what does that mean dude <laughs> it, well it's it's I, I don't think it's super important for us to get into like the nuts and bolts of that uh, on the podcast <laughs> okay. but it's you know like within your 
muscle, it's, you know, we have, um, you know, like different kind of like contractile apparatus and the pination angle is like, um, essentially, um, the angle at which like the muscle is being like pulled back. And so that's going to actually influence like how hard it can contract, I think is kind of the Mm. simple way to put it. Um, but these are things that are actually like, you know, people talk about, um, how sprinting is sort of this innate thing, you know, like sprinters are like born and not made. And I think a lot of that has to do with these sorts of like nuanced sort of like genetically determined factors. Right. So, um, we can get into like whether or not this stuff is trainable, but, but to a large degree, like you're, you're born with like certain muscle architecture. Another thing that studies mention is, is something called fascicle length. Um, and so like, there's all these like little things that, that, um, like predispose certain people to be able to contract their muscles like extremely fast. Um, and so that's, that's kind of like, you know, maybe the, the physiological basis of, um, you know, like sprinting ability. Um, but there are other things that, that kind of determine a good sprint as well. And, you know, that's going to be maybe more the, the neural side of things. And that's something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast with respect to, to lifting. So, um, motor unit recruitment. So like you can't use, uh, muscle fibers that you're not recruiting, um, neural drive. So like how, how much of a signal you're sending to your muscles, um, you know, and then, then coordination as well. So like all these things are going to play a big role in sprinting. Um, and the way that those come in is, is that that's sort of like the, the neural side of things. So sprinting can kind of be broken down into like two parts. Um, there's sort of the, the muscular side of things, which is the production of force. And then the neural side of things, which is the production of angular velocity or like how quickly your legs are moving. So you put those two together and you get, you know, the phrase that maybe some of you have heard neuromuscular power. So sprinting is really, um, you know, it's, it's a combination of how hard you're pedaling and how fast you're pedaling and all humans, all, all like living things have what's called a force velocity curve, which explains that you can either do something like really forcefully or really fast. And when we're trying to make power, the, the optimal combination of the two is, is going to be like somewhere in the middle of both. And for every person, it's a little bit different. So some people put out their best power sprinting at, let's say, 110 RPM, whereas other people put out their best power, like if we're talking about a, like a BMX racer, like 150 RPM. So it's going to be a little bit different for each person, but you're, you're doing some combination of these two things to make the absolute most power. Anybody else have anything to add on that? <laughs> Um, so I've got a question, Andrew. So the going back to that ATP PC system. So um, is there like a cadence range that would uh, would be best suited for those that initial like five to fifteen second burst where you're burning through that entire energy system? Like if you if you're higher in the cadence you know range, will you conserve a little bit more of that energy and be able to prolong the um, the burning of the that energy system? those stores that's that's a really good question actually adam and and i don't i don't have an answer to that and i you know i think um there's probably not a lot of good research on that because you know essentially 
the way that we think about sprinting is that it's like our final kind of effort. And so although it is sort of limited energetically, right? Like you can sprint until you, you don't have enough energy to sprint anymore. But I don't think many people think about like the conservation of energy within a sprint. Um, and I, I really honestly have no idea like what is energetically more costly, like sprinting in a big gear or sprinting at a high cadence. Because with that force velocity mm-hmm. curve, it's, it, it basically looks like a parabola, right? So if you draw a line, like cutting off the very top, um, there are two like equivalent points, maybe let's say at like 100 RPM and like 140 RPM, where you're producing the same mm-hmm. amount of power in like very different ways. Which one is more efficient? I don't know. I, I think the way that you would determine the gear that you jump in is like, you know, how quickly you need to accelerate. Um, like generally sure. speaking, yeah, like we'll get into that a fastest, little bit. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that. Um, you know, and, and this is actually kind of well. like, a, let's do it. What is it? Should, should I ask it now? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You said the, the ATP PC system is five to 10 seconds. Is there any exception to that? Like could, can a very gifted, talented, strong, whatever you call this athlete, could they extend that out to more or is that, is that a hard limit? I I think it's, I'm sure they could extend it out, but let's say it's 10 seconds, right? Like if you extended it by 50%, which would be like a huge margin, you'd still only be at 15 mm-hmm. seconds, right? So I, I think you can. I think it probably does vary. Um, but the the sort of like anaerobic glycolysis energy supply it is actually pretty darn good too. And so, you know, um, That's if like you look at like a power... Up, right? Yeah, so, but if you look at like a power duration curve, um, you know, like pe- people definitely you know, produce their most power at one second. And then it maybe starts dropping all the way to 10 seconds. Um, there are Mm -hmm. a lot of people for whom like maybe from like eight seconds to 20 seconds, like it's basically flat. Right. So like even once that anaerobic system takes over, um, you know, they're still sprinting pretty darn hard. So, you know, yeah, I, I just, I'm not sure that it matters, I guess. Um, but okay. You know, Creatine is in is in the name, you know, phosphocreatine. And so, you know, I do think that you can supplement creatine, which we've talked about on this podcast. I, I don't know of any, like, endurance road athletes who do that, but um, I w- I'd be unsurprised if track athletes um, do this. You know, maybe maybe that can help kind of, like, extend that energy source a little bit. Because in track sprinting, for instance, like – Maybe maybe it is really important to kind of build up that reserve um, because those athletes definitely go through like their entire functional reserve capacity. So if you think about like a kilo, um, you know these guys are building tons of muscle to be able to, um, you know, uh, have like a huge uh, reserve of like uh, like glucose stores, right? And and they'll do like a thousand watts for like a minute. And so maybe they would do like a thousand fifty if they had like more creatine stored in their cells. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, creatine is a very interesting supplement that I have a lot of questions about that. Yeah, it, yeah, and I'm not I'm not really sure either. Um, I think 
you know, we're going to get into this in a second here. Um, but I think, uh, for most, I think like road cyclists, like endurance road cyclists, like it doesn't sound worth it, but because maybe Even for a crit, right? I mean, crit is still, I think it's still endurance. so long. Like, yeah. That's just, yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking too. Well, and you probably risk burning through some of that throughout the race anyways. Right. 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 Yeah. And, like and if you're, and... yeah, I think so. And, and that's like, that's one of the, like the big things about sprinting that we're going to talk about here in a second is like, you know, if you're, if you're an athlete, you know, and you kind of have to think about, you know, what you're going to train, there's always a trade off there, right? Like if you spend all your time training your sprint, you know, you're probably not going to have as much threshold and as much, you know, like fatigue resistance. Um, and if you can't make it to the end of the race because you've given up these other things and you never get to use your sprint, you know, so like you, you need to be able to, I, I read an article by a guy, uh, Nate Wilson, who's, you know, works with EF education now. And, and he, he sort of described this phenomena as like weathering the storm, which is like sprinters have to make it to the end. Like they have to, you know, make it through the race and it, how big that storm is sort of depends on, on what sort of racing you're doing. You know, if you're doing a crit, you have to be able to do, let's say, maybe a thousand kilojoules and then still be able to have a good sprint. If it's like a, you know, like a road stage race or something like that, maybe you have to do 3,000 kilojoules and still be able to sprint well. Um, but yeah, let's let's maybe yeah. kind of get into the the training side of things. Like, is sprinting trainable is, I guess, maybe like the big question. Because like I said earlier, it's, you know, something a lot of people will say is that like sprinters are born and not, not made, but, um, you know, you can definitely just to answer the question right off the bat, you can definitely improve your sprint. Um, but like Scott, like, here's a question for you. Like how much has your like sprint changed from when you first got into cycling till now? I don't think it has changed a whole (laughs) lot. Uh, I think it's definitely, I'm naturally, more of a sprinter type of rider rather than like a climber or a time trialist or anything like that. Um, having that said, it's, it, you never want to like, I never want to limit myself and classify my, classify myself as a sprinter. Cause then you're, you're, you're limiting yourself by calling yourself a sprinter. And I think that goes both ways too. Like a lot, a lot of athletes will kind of already group themselves into as a time trialist or a climber. And then if it, most races come down to a sprint, they've almost already lost that race because they, they, they think they can't sprint and that, and then they don't practice their sprint. So then they're, they're already on the back foot, um, in most, most races. So I think every, at least every road cycle should be practicing sprinting, um, for sure. Cause even on, you know, mountaintop finish, it can come down to a sprint and that, that could be the difference between first and fifth or 10th or, whatever. Um, so I definitely think it should be incorporated into every athlete's training program, at least to some extent is, um, practicing sprinting. But I also think it's definitely, um, you know, some people are definitely more talented in sprinting than, than other athletes. Yeah. And Scott, can you give our listeners here, um, some info about you? So 
tell us what your your height and weight is because um, you don't you're not like a one of these like big huge sprinter guys right i mean for for someone who's listening yeah. right now um you know they might walk up to you and just not even realize you're a sprinter at all um yeah. at least not I'm not like, based on what people typically think of yeah for sure i'm uh 510 and around 145 pounds okay um so that's not super heavy uh, and I don't have a super, you know, high max power. You know, you, you hear all these numbers. My max power is usually around 1400 Watts. So it's not, you know, super high. That's, that's decent. You know, you can do, you can do a lot with that, but, um, so it's not, it's not all about having a, a super high max power because like you guys are talking about, you still have to make it to the finish line. Um, and it's all about who can, who can do the max power after, an hour crit or a four hour road stage. It's not about who can hit the max power in a easy gear, you know, out training when you just were riding at a hundred Watts for 10 minutes. Um, sure. so I think that that's a big part of it too. Yeah. So, and Scott, going back to Andrew's question. So, you know, he was asking, you know, how much has your sprint changed? So that, you know, max power of 1400 Watts or maybe even extrapolating that out into like your, you know, max 10 second output, how how much have you seen that those numbers improve say in the last five years? Um, I've only been training with a power meter since 2018. Um, I'd say seen a little bit of improvement, um, but not too much. Uh, I have seen like this winter, I wasn't able to do any weightlifting. So I saw a little bit of a drop off in like max power numbers, but not as much as you might've thought just because of like schedule and race schedule and stuff. I wasn't able to get into the gym for at all. Um, so in, in previous years when I've been weightlifting and doing heavier weights and less endurance training, I have seen higher max powers, but that's also like not during the race season. So it doesn't really matter. Um, but as far as like performance, even when I, in 2017, when I was, uh, that was like my first year out of juniors, I felt like I was, uh, sprinting just as well as I am now, but I didn't well, have a power meter too. And that's, so. you know, that's sort of what we talked about a bit earlier, what I said earlier, which is like sprinting, like training for sprinting is, is sort of a, a trade off. Right. And so something that you'll actually see a lot, like in the, um, in the world tour is that sprinters, you know, over the course of the years will actually lose some of their sprint, right? So we sort of um, assumed in asking that question that your sprint had improved, but um, in a lot of cases it actually goes down. And that doesn't mean that performance necessarily goes down, but um, it seems like there's a correlation, a negative correlation between like grand tour starts and sprint ability. (laughs) Um, So like all of that endurance training you know, let's say maybe it, it converts your fastest twitch fibers to be more oxidative. Like that's going to reduce your sprint, but, um, you know, that's just the cost of entry, right? So like, if you're going to make it through a grand tour or if you're going to like sprint at the end of a, a big road stage, like, I mean, you have to, you have to make that trade off a little bit, but, um, yeah, I mean, most people don't necessarily, um, like improve their sprint a ton, I would say like year to year. Um, and in fact, like usually like when you're your freshest is it might be when you 
sprint the best because sort of any any sort of training, like even any sort of weightlifting will convert your fastest twitch fibers to be a little bit more oxidative. It's only after like loads of resting that they go back to being crazy fast. But but again, it's like so, you know, so you need let's to have go back to resistance. you know kind of yeah, so let's go back to, you know, training the physical side of sprinting a little bit. So, you know, Scott did mention he noticed a little drop off in his sprint by not hitting the gym this winter. Um, what, you know, what, what do you have to say to that Andrew? I mean, do you think getting in the gym and getting swole is, is, you know, a good first step for people to start, you know, improving some of their, you know, at least max power? Yeah. So I, I think it really depends on what sort of, um, sprinter you are, or I should say like what your force velocity curve looks like. And, um, unfortunately this isn't something that's super easy to test, but, um, you know, if you work with an ignition coach, um, you know, or you have access to WKO, you can, you can take a look at this and you can actually figure out like on what side of that curve you're limited. So if your sprint is limited by the ability to produce force, um, then doing some like max strength lifting is going to help. I mean, and honestly, like even if you're not limited in that way, doing some max force lifting is going to benefit you just by virtue of like increased motor unit recruitment. Um, but if you're limited in terms of like being able to move your legs fast, you really need to be doing not super heavy lifting, but you need to be doing like explosive lifting, right? So we're sort of tackling the other side of the equation. And so it's, I think step one, know thyself. <laughs> um, step two, you know, train train what you're limited at. If we were going to talk about like first steps to sprinting, uh, and we're talking with like a fresh cyclist, I would I would say just practicing sprinting. <laughs> um, like like sprinting itself. I'm thinking of like somebody who who doesn't have thousands of hours on a bike. Uh, sprinting itself is like you have to have some coordination there, some handling skills, some uh, maybe even like a little bit of flexibility. Like you have to be able to be comfortable doing that to be able to do it in a race. So I would, you know, I'd be afraid to like jump the gun and get into the gym and do all this other stuff before you're actually even like just good at like the form of sprinting on the bike and feeling comfortable doing that. Like, at the end of a race or in the middle of a workout when you're, and I think doing it when you're tired is something too. Like, obviously if you look at stats and stuff of basketball games, um, the majority of injuries happen in the fourth quarter. Cause that's when everybody's tired and they, they aren't as focused. So means like they're not doing things as properly as they were at the beginning of the race or the beginning of the game, which leads to injury. So, and I think it's the same thing. Kind of some of that carries over to sprinting too. Like, you need to be able to carry that really good sprinting form, even when you are really tired. I I one hundred percent agree. What are I, what are some? Go ahead, Andrew. Well, I was just gonna say, like, I, I think one of like my biggest um, take home lessons about training sprinting, um, and this is this is just you know one guy's opinion, is that you can make the majority of the improvements here sprinting on the bike, like actually sprinting. Um, I, I think mm-hmm. that that's, that, that, like Drew said, is definitely the best place to start. And I think, um, the lifting only comes in, I think like once you've sort of already done this and gotten yourself as far as you can without it, but sorry, Adam, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. 
Like yeah, I so, said, um, oh, go ahead, Adam. Oh yeah, I, I was just gonna say it's so like let's let's talk about you know it's maybe some uh, sprint workouts that someone could do on the bike. You know, so if we're we're talking about bike specific, you know, bu- building um, bike specific skills, what 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 kind of workouts would you have an athlete go do? Yeah, or so Scott, if you want to talk about again, some workouts that you do. Um, with when I when it comes to sprint training, I like to call it more practicing than actually training, <laughs> uh, because there's so many like, like that sounds kind of weird, but so I think a, a important thing is to like pick out a finish line when you're practicing your sprinting, um, and and practicing getting there as fast as possible rather than trying to produce any power numbers or anything like that. Um, Cause that's at the end of the day, that's what you're doing is trying to get to the finish line as fast as possible. And also um, replicating the, the speeds that you would see in a race. So a sprint doing going 20 miles an hour on a flat road is a lot different than what you're going to see in a race where you're going 35 or 40 miles an hour if it's a big bunch sprint, you know, that's pretty fast. So a lot of times I'll do sprints like coming down a downhill into a flat road so that you're, and and then pick a finish line, maybe 200 meters after the bottom of the hill and then practice and then start my sprint at the bottom when you're going the fastest and then just trying and get to the finish line as fast as possible. And then that also helps you practice your timing. So the the perfectly timed sprint is one where you keep accelerating until just before the finish line. Cause as soon as you stop accelerating, you're going, somebody's going to pass you. Um, so you need to, to keep increasing your speed until just before the finish line. Um, so that's, that's an important thing to practice. And that helps you when you pick out a finish line out on the road, when you're practicing, um, it helps you to, to kind of, uh, figure out your strengths and weaknesses in a sprint. So if you have a, a particularly long sprint, then you might want to launch your sprint earlier at the finish of a race. Or if you have, if you're more of like a, a quick, you have a good jump, but you don't have a super long sprint, then you want to wait longer in your, in, in, at the finish of a race to, to launch your sprint. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think, I think Scott is, is nailing it here. And I think, um, you know, we call those like rolling sprints or like sprint practice. And I, for me, that would, that would be like kind of the final, um, the final evolution of like a, like a sprint workout series. Um, and so, I mean, I think that, that, that all that is great And like, rather than doing it by time, the way that we do a lot of our workouts, actually sort of having a finish line for ourselves, like really gets us into that kind of sprinting mindset and like, encourages sort of the the right the right behavior the right mindset but um i think before that something that i've given a lot of my athletes is um two very different things and this kind of goes back to the force velocity thing again um and that's big gear sprints which you could do um seated or standing um typically these are done from you know super slow speed you know and you're trying to overcome like a huge gear by producing tons of force so you're training the fourth side of the equation. And then the other side would be like a, like a leg speed sprint. So you're sprinting like 
in a small gear, like as fast as you can. And you're training that coordination, the sort of the, the neural side of things. And then, and then, you know, I guess ideally you would bring that all together in the rolling sprint and you would, you know, you would have the whole curve shift up and you'd be able to produce more power. <laughs> yeah. And I, I like what Scott, you know, and what you guys are talking about here with that, the rolling sprints are kind of, you know, using a, a slight descent to be able to get up to speed. I like that too, because it helps you understand like your gearing a little bit. So you're, you're in an appropriate gear when you start your sprint and you get a feel for what it's like. Like, you know, some people shift one or two gears during their sprints. Others prefer to just spin up their cadence and, and it helps you practice and figure out which your preference is. Um, I think some of the best sprinters probably do the latter where they're just in, increasing their cadence. Um, but you know, in one one thing I'll add though, before before you go and do any of these sprint workouts, make sure your bike is working properly because shifting under some of these bigger loads is when you can drop a chain or break a chain or rip off your derailleur. So make sure your your bike's shifting properly before you go and do any sprint workouts, really. Yeah, for Another, sure. That's definitely an easy it, way to hurt yourself. We were doing a training ride this spring and Kyle Perry, another ignition coach, uh, also on the Texas Roadhouse team. He was like up the road from us a little bit, the main group, and we came rolling up on him and he was literally like crawling out of a ditch covered in mud. And we're like, what did you just do? Like what happened? And cause we were on a straight dead, straight road, flat, like, and we're like, what happened? He's like, I, I just felt good. So I, I thought I'd, you know, I was going to sprint to this sign up here just to practice my sprint. And he's like, Oh, I think I might've hit my all time highest number. And then my chain just popped right off and he went OTB <laughs> luckily right into some like soft grass and mud, but he didn't get hurt or anything like that. But it could have, it could have been a lot worse if he had flipped and hit the pavement, but luckily he went into the grass and it was kind of, it was almost kind of funny, but yeah, just to back up, <laughs> like this is definitely uh something that yeah make sure your bike works for sure um so moving forward um i think one thing that i'll say that's that's sort of interesting about sprinting and that makes it a little bit unique to kind of the rest of you know the stuff we train is that it's it's also like a technical skill right like sprinting is is physical like it requires all that strength and speed but um, like the coordination element of it is super important. So maybe Scott can, you know, talk us through, like, if you're, if you're training somebody to be a sprinter, like how, how would you tell somebody like how to sprint? Like, what are you doing with your hands? Like where, like, how are you positioned? Like, where are you relative to the bike? Yeah. Um, I mean, typically like for a road sprint, you're typically, your hands are in your drops. Um, and this, you know, makes you lower, so so more aerodynamic. First of all, it also kind of gives you um, the ability to, to shift and brake while still having pretty good control of your handlebars, um, which is important because typically in a sprint you're fighting for position, so you need to either hit the brakes real quickly or or you're changing speeds a lot, especially in a crit where you're coming in and out of corners. So you're always shifting and braking. And so you need to be able to still ha have a good grip on your handlebars um, and be able to shift and, and, and brake. Um, as far as like 
overall position on the bike. Obviously, like lower is better, but it also you want to be in a position where you're kind of centered on your bike, so you're not off balance in any way because a lot of things can happen. So you can like if you're too far forward, then your rear rear wheel isn't weighted enough, and if you hit a rough patch of road or you hit a pothole or something you know, things can easily, um, go wrong. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm not I a just, huge fan of like specific bike fitting for sprinting. Um, cause then you're kind of, I just think a proper bike fit is a proper bike fit. Um, at the end of the day, you lowering your stem by a certain amount, you know, it, it if you're going to be uncomfortable for the, for the rest of the time that you're riding it, but you're going to be 1% more arrow in a sprint. I don't really think that's uh, worth it. Yeah. And one of the, one of the cues that I've, um, you know, like given athletes or heard, heard given athletes is that you sort of want your, um, the nose of your saddle, um, like just behind your thighs. And I've even heard people use the cue of like, you should, as you're rocking the bike back and forth, you should like feel the, the saddle, um, you know, touch, touching like your hamstrings almost. Um, and so I think, I think it does depend on like where, you know, how far forward your saddle is. Um, but yeah, I've definitely had that experience of like, you know, getting myself so far forward that my rear wheel skips or, um, you know, like loses traction. Um, and I think another, you know, element of like staying a little bit further back that people don't talk about is, um, if you're a little bit further back, you can actually like recruit more of your hips. Um, so if you're, if your hips are all the way far forward, your hips are already like opened. So you're not, you're not able to extend your hips and like recruit the glutes as much for your sprint. Um, and one thing that's, that's, you know, again, unique about the sprint is that you're, you're using like every dang muscle you have, right? Like sprints are the one like truly maximal effort. Um, so you're using your quads and your hamstrings and your glutes um, and another thing that's sort of unique about it is that you're using your upper body as well. So you're using your, your biceps and your lats, um, because you're, you're pulling on the bars, right? So, um, it's a whole super coordinated thing that has to happen, you know, while your legs are moving super, super fast. Um, so yeah, you definitely, you know, need to, need to be training all of this. I think there's like a lot of Watts to be gained just by improving your, your coordination and form. This is goofy, but when I was a junior and I would sprint, I would, you know, you see the like prototypical like bike throw getting like the bike just getting thrown back and forth. And I think a natural side effect of that, that if you're not paying attention is your front wheel swerving all over the place. And somebody had like sent me a series of photos of some race where I got second in a sprint or something like that. And they said, look at how much further you, you traveled because you, your front wheel was all over the road. And they had said, if you had just kept your front wheel straighter, you would have went less distance. Is that legit? Or is that like, is that true? Like, is that a real thing? Um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think it is. And I think it really, you know, and this is kind of like a hotly debated or maybe like a thing that people are confused about is like when you're pulling on your bars, like what, you know, what does that look like? Like what hand are you pulling on relative to your, to what foot you're pushing down with? Right. And and we can let Scott answer that, but 
but I'll definitely just kind of paint a picture for our listeners here really quick. You know, when somebody is sprinting really well, when they're really well coordinated, their hips and their torso are totally stable and the bike is kind of rocking back and forth underneath them. Right. So like if you're sprinting poorly, on the other hand, you know, the handlebars are turning side to side and, you know, you're zigzagging back and forth or maybe your whole body is twisting side to side. Um, so it's, you know, again, we, this is like a whole body thing. And so, you know, part of that that I didn't mention before is that your core is also recruited, right? Like it's, it's really, truly full body here. And, and having that stability to be able to, you know, move your, like put all of the power from your legs into the bike means that your hips need to be stable sort of in space. So your, your torso should be, you know, kind of staying still and your bike should be moving. But Scott, maybe you can tell us, you know, like, you know, if you're pushing down with your right foot, what are your, which hand are you pulling up with? And it's, it's sort of something that's like almost hard to ask somebody to explain because, you know, it's, it's so, (laughs) you know, deeply ingrained in you, you know, it's like, it's not saying that we, you know, you can even really do consciously. Well, yeah, so I, I think one like, way to think about it is, um, like, are you are you using your hands to move the bike, or are you trying to use your hands to stabilize the bike? Right. Yeah. Um, well, it's, that, I mean, that'll it's, kind it's of both. that'll kind of tell you which. Correct. Yeah. So you know, a lot of people, what they'll do is they'll <laughs> use their hands to try and and move the move the bike even more. So, like, let's say they're pushing down with their right their right foot. Um, which is going to lean the bike naturally to the right. A lot of people will then pull up with their left hand to try and kind of ac- accentuate that that movement, that lateral movement of the bike. Um, but in in reality, I mean, you're, you're you're actually kind of using should be using both both hands. Like you're maybe using your left hand to to help you stabilize your core so that your your body stays uh, more centered over the bike. But then you also have to use you have to counter that with the right hand. Uh, you're kind of, you know, I guess pulling up with that hand too, if you think about it, um, to help stabilize the bike. Yeah. And the way that I like to think about this is, um, you know, if you imagine like the vector of force with your foot. So like if you're pushing sort of down, um, on the pedal at, let's say like a 45 degree angle relative to the ground, you want to be pulling back up with your hand at that same angle. So you want those vectors to Mm -hmm. be like directly opposing and that's going to produce the most stability and the most force. Um, So this is all assuming that you're sprinting, you know, like at high speeds, like the rolling sprints that Scott was talking about, sort of the exception to like what we're talking about here is like a a super slow speed sprint. So this could be in cycle cross or more commonly like a track start where you're in a big gear, in which case you're actually pulling with both hands um, so you're, you're pulling both hands back towards you and you're really like driving with your hips. So if anybody's seen, you know, like a track start, um, it, it's kind of pretty funny looking, you know, it looks like, uh, somebody like humping a beach <laughs> ball. And the reason is, is because they're actually, you know, they're pulling with both hands and then they're driving their hips forward. So it's, it looks a little bit silly, but I guess that's the way that it's done best. And any, any, uh, Additional thoughts on that, Scott? Um, yeah, I think this is all kind of like a lot to think about, especially during a 10 second sprint. Cause you only have 10 seconds to actually like think about what you're doing. <laughs> so somebody who's going out yeah. and practicing, like 
also during a, a race or any you know any competition, if you're thinking about like these things, you probably should be like thinking about something else, like your positioning or where the finish line is or something like that. So it needs to be almost be trained as like a what would you call it? Inherit thing like you just you like program it in, yeah, yeah. You gotta pro- so yeah, like, you gotta train it a lot. So it's just natural practice. Exactly. So if you, yeah, it's all same thing with like, yeah. I guess it doesn't make sense, but definitely you need to think about this in training so that every time you do a sprint, you're like, and and also not practice all all these things that we just talked about. You know, your hand position, your your where your hips are relative to your saddle. Like you can't possibly think about all those things every every time you go out and practice sprinting so you need to kind of take it one step at a time and then oh and make make it uh make it like it so that every time you do a sprint you're uh you know practicing the right right form and and making sure your hands are in the right position and, and and pulling up with with on the bars you know making sure you're not swinging your bike too much and everything like that but in a race, yeah, and it's, I think it goes back to, to think about any of those things, right? Like Scott, like you were saying, like in in your sprint practices, a lot of times you're thinking about speed, not power, right? Um, and that makes yeah. sense, right? Because it's the guy who gets to the line the fastest that's going to win, not the guy who does the most power. Sometimes they're the same, um, but you have to figure out like what's going to make you the most fast, fastest. What? What combination yeah. is going to make you <laughs> the fastest? Get you there the fastest. So you know maybe that's being in a little bit easier gear so you can maybe you find yourself being able to stabilize yourself on the bike a little bit more because you're starting in an easier gear or maybe you're a super strong rider and you want to start in that little bit harder gear because you already you know have the stability um but i think that's like you're saying that some of you have to practice and figure out kind of what works for you so that when it comes down to that 30 second sprint at the end it's just instinctual yeah and a lot of times uh one of the a lot of times when I'm practicing sprinting, I'll, I'll, you know, obviously like lap my, my head unit, um, when I do it and I'll, the one metric that I try to look at the most is my, I'll do my sprints on the exact same downhill into a flat and I'll try to look at my max speed as uh, rather than my max power or my 10 second power, or my five second power. Cause that's really, you're trying to get to go as fast as possible. And since I'm doing it on the same road, and I start my sprint at the, you know, the same mailbox and I finish at the same telephone pole or whatever. Um, then I can really, you know, figure out what, what makes me go the fastest. And then you don't really have to necessarily think about all these little things with your body position and your hands and everything like that. You can just figure out how you go the fastest just by practicing. Yeah. And a lot of that is, is really, natural for some and I think unnatural for others. So, you know, it's, I I think if you're, if you're listening out there and you have a coach or, you know, even like a friend who's, you know, more experienced than you, I would say like, don't be afraid to either have somebody like take a video of you sprinting. Um, if you're sort of new to this and uncertain that you're, you're doing the right thing or, um, you know, just have somebody watch you. Um, because, you know, especially these days, like in the age of, you know, a lot of athletes like spending their whole winters like on Zwift, um, you know, where the bike is sort of in a fixed position. Like this is not necessarily intuitive to everybody. And I, I think it's um, you shouldn't be ashamed of that. And so, um, you know, it's always good to just um, 
you know, check with somebody to, to make sure that you're, you know, you're on the right track, but we're coming up uh, on uh, pretty close to an hour. And one of the, one of the, but one of the, one of the reasons I respect Scott so much for his, his sprinting prowess is because he's not your typical huge dude, huge powers, uh, power numbers, but he's like real wiry. He's like, he's like, he's good at, at being where he needs to be at the end of a race. And I think, um, when I think of a good sprinter, like somebody like Scott, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is not, Oh, he can put out massive numbers. It's man. He knows how to like position himself. He knows how to, when to go, uh, what wheels to follow, how to, how to corner all of those like, um, tactical, uh, strategic things. So Scott, do you have like any big takeaways on that side of sprinting? Cause on Yeah. Honestly, I think that is, is how you are such a good sprinter is cause you're really good at the, that part of it. I missed what you just said. I think, I think we maybe lost Scott there for a second, but I, oh, I no. I'm, I'm eager to, Andrew, take it away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's back. Thank goodness. Here we go. All right. Well, Scott's back with us. All right, I'm back. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> Wi-Fi. I'm yeah, hey, so so Scott, so so Drew was just talking to you saying you're like, you know, kind of getting to the to the end of this here. So, um in order to employ a good sprint, you have to be in the right position. You know, that's and he was saying for you that's one of the things you're really good at is positioning yourself, knowing you know where you need to be, when you need to launch your sprint, how to, how to launch your sprint, um, but also how to you know conserve your energy for that sprint. So can you can you give us a little bit of you know some of the things that go through your mind, say with you know handful of laps to go in a crit, or you know handful of miles or kilometers to go in a road race uh, that helps you that that kind of that you use to kind of trigger. Uh, when you need to start making some of those moves to be in the right position? Yeah. So for every sprint, there's really two sprints. There's a sprint for position, and then there's the sprint for the finish line. You know, sometimes a sprint for, for position, depending on your, your if you have a teammate working for you or you just happen to be in the right spot, could be, you know, fairly easy. But a lot of times people will, and this is myself included, I'll try and save too much for the final sprint and not really sprint for the position. But then if you don't have good position, then you can't win the race anyways. So the sprint for the position is really more important than the sprint for the, for the finish line. Um, you know, I, I definitely have like a, I don't know if you would call it like a fear or a, like a mental block where I'm almost afraid of like wasting too much to get to a good position. And then, get not being able to, to do a good sprint. But even, even if I, I, I use my sprint to get to second wheel at a last turn, you're only going to get passed by so many people. Whereas if you, if you try and conserve too much and you end up coming 15th out of the last turn, you really, you're, you're, even if you have a good sprint, there's going to be p- too many people in your way to, to use it. So definitely um, the sprint for position is, is, is something that's, uh, you know, not on the top of people's minds, you know, people are, are trying to, to, 
you know, bash bars too much or, or wiggle their way through or, or just not using their sprint to get to a good position. Whereas that's, that's kind of the most important thing. Um, yeah. And how, how do you read the race to know when that sprint for the position is going to take place? It depends on the, the speed of the race. Um, the, the speed of the finish line, like if it's an uphill sprint, you can, you would want to, you know, obviously momentum matters in every sprint, but, but you can, there's a lot more changes of speed. If it's a slower sprint, like you can, you can, I would say you could pass more, more people on an uphill sprint than you could on a flat sprint. Like if you're coming in at 70 K an hour or however fast, it's going to be hard to, to accelerate from there. But if you're coming into an uphill sprint where you're only going 30 K an hour, it's going to be, if you have a good sprint, it's going to be easier to accelerate. So you really have to judge and, and then also in crits where the last turn is. So usually like, you know, you're talking with your teammates and, in a crit and you want to say, all right, I want to be second wheel out of last turn, or I want to be third or fourth wheel of the last turn. If it's a little bit farther to the finish line. So you got to judge that because most of the time you can only go single file through the last turn, um, without being too dangerous. So it really depends on the course and, and the competition. Like if it's being, if it's going to be, um, if you, you know, racing a crit and you think it's going to be super fast in the last couple laps, then you want to get to position before it's super fast and, and you can't move up anymore. Or, or if it's super tight, then there's only, it's going to be harder to move up. Um, even in a road race, if it's a tight finish, whereas it's a big wide road, you could, you could even come in the last 500 meters, you could come from 20 wheels back. And if you have the right momentum, you could still win, win the sprint. I feel like in crits, there are usually spots on the course that throughout the race, you kind of start to pick up, okay, this is the, this is the spot usually straight away where I can move up. And it's on those spots in the last two laps where you're probably going to be wanting to like move closer to the front, um, those straightaways. Cause once you go into a series of turns, you might be able to pass one person, but you're not going to be able to like stand up and pass five guys, you know, like you're almost kind of locked in. If it's, if it's, if it's a series of turns before the last turn, you need to be thinking about that final straightaway on the backside of the course or something like that to be moving up. Yeah. One thing I'll add to is Scott. So if you're go ahead, Andrew is, is the the last thing I'll add is like what the wind is doing. So, um, I think about this in, in two Mm -hmm. ways. First is like, is the spring going to be a headwind or a tailwind? the tailwind you want to go earlier if it's a headwind you want to like hide in the wheels a little bit longer you know pop out at 50 meters to go and then also like if it's a side wind um you know what side you're going to come around people on so you know if the wind is coming from the left um you know i'm going to pin myself on the right side of the sprint and so nobody can come up like on my draft on the right you know so i'm passing everybody like on the right side of the wind that's all (laughs) Yeah, and, and a lot of times that similarly applies to like uh, establishing a breakaway. Um, similar scenarios. Um, so, so one last question for you, Scott. So, let's say so for you. So you know you're you're in the race. Um, you you know it's going to come down to a bunch sprint. You're there to win. You're trying to you know win the bunch sprint. 
when when the bunch sprint starts, what is the furthest back position you want to find yourself in? Let's just say it's a standard, uh, you know, flat sprint finish, fairly high speeds, um, and you know that the bunch sprint is starting. I don't know, 15, 20 seconds out or something. Um, probably second or third wheel. Yeah, so you but want to be pre- also, pretty dang close to the front. Yeah, but it, it it also depends on how much how much momentum you have, really. Like if you're coming from behind and say you're following somebody else who's moving up, or you have a teammate moving you up, and and you have that momentum, then you can afford to be a little bit farther back. But if it, if it's just lined out and it's super fast, then yeah, sec, second or third or third wheel. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, I just ask because I think a lot of people, you know, that are newer to crits or um, road racing and, um, you know, that are trying to figure out sprinting or bunch sprinting, I think they get that wrong. They 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 just end up kind of they, they don't think about that. They don't realize that uh, they, they need to be towards the front when that final lap or, you know, final corner comes around and they end up finding themselves, you know, 10th wheel thinking that they have still a chance of, you know, the winning the bunch sprint from there and, and maybe in a cat four or five road race, there's, there's still an opportunity if you are exceptional, uh, at your sprinting, but, um, you know, the further, the further, you know, the further you are towards the front, obviously you don't want to be on the front, um, unless you're Matthew Vanderpool, but, um, you know, being, being towards the front just means less guys, you got to come around. Yeah. I think a lot of people are scared of getting stuck on the front, but, you know, sometimes that'll, that'll just happen. It's just a, a cost of, of racing, you know, it's better to find yourself be farther forward. <laughs> and every once in a while you get stuck on the front rather than always being, you know, 10th to 15th wheel because you're, you're afraid of being on the stuck, mm-hmm. getting stuck on the front coming right. into this front. Yeah. Cool guys. Well, anything else to add here? Scott, what's your favorite movie? Uh, I don't, I don't know if I have a favorite. Movie. Um, <laughs> come on, you got to you got to oh. brief me with that before Scott. the podcast, so I can like think about it. No, that's yeah. the whole point. Off the cuff, that's like that mm-hmm. was the whole the whole podcast was building to this question. <laughs> All right, we'll let you slide. Scott doesn't have time uh, for movies. It's, it's Bill and Ted. I'll answer for him. I was going to say Ted, that. Actually. Everybody, I was going to say that as a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I made Scott watch that movie like a year ago. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks guys. This was fun. Scott, thanks for coming on the show. Hopefully we'll have you back again Dude, at some point me. and maybe talking when we get closer to the cyclocross season or something, you can uh, shed some, some wisdom from there. But uh, all right guys, we'll uh, catch you next week. Adios. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the matchbox podcast. Like I said at the beginning, you can send any questions or topic suggestions to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email titled The Matchbox Podcast. Links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes. Tune in next week for another endurance training-related discussion and learn about how you can find that extra match for your next big event. Catch you all soon. Let's go! Let's go!